I didn't make a title page for today, but if you've been watching in your bulletin or on the announcements, you know that my topic today is, I believe in Christmas elves. Kind of an odd title for a church service, for a sermon in a Christian church. I want to take you on a journey today, a rather long journey, because we all know where Christmas elves live, at the North Pole. But we're not going to travel there physically. We're going to travel in our imaginations. And the, the journey is going to take us through several different locations, both, um, both local and far back in history. And the journey starts right here in the fresh snow outside today. I've always loved fresh snowfalls because you can see the tracks. You can see what happened last night. When the snow is fresh, then you know whatever you're seeing there in the snow is very recent. And I remember in high school once going out after a fresh snowfall overnight into the pastures, into the fields near my house. And I picked up a track and I started following it. And uh, it soon became clear that the, uh, the animal that left those tracks behind was hunting. And uh, there, there came a place where, where I could see that it had crouched and it had slowed down. And, and then the ambush and, and, and the rabbit ran off. And you could see the tracks as the rabbit tried to evade in the slipping and sliding in the snow. And the rabbit dived into a very thick bush, uh, low undergrowth. The, the hunter couldn't get in there. The hunter went around and I could see that the rabbit came back out almost exactly where it went in. And then it crouched there, as rabbits do, uh, silently. And then, just in that moment, an owl swooped down and picked it up. Because I could see the, the wing marks on the snow. What was in your imagination as I tell that story? It's a true story. What color was the rabbit? What was hunting it? A coyote, a fox, a wolf, a bobcat? What was in your imagination? You see, the tracks are real, but they're not the real thing. The tracks in the snow give evidence that something real was there, that something real exists, but they're not the real thing. They're they're an indication that something has visited, an indication that something real was present, but it, they tell us very little about that thing that left the tracks. But they tell us enough to believe that the animal is real. Let's take another track to the North Pole. Many of you have seen this, this uh, picture frame in my study. I picked that up this summer when Colleen and I were on holidays. We were visiting uh, an antique shop. Well, not really an antique shop. Actually, most of the stuff in there was made in China and made to look like antiques. Uh, but there was antiques in there as well, old things and new things that looked like old things. And, um, and when I saw this, this picture here, I immediately wanted it. I didn't even look at the price because I, I knew I couldn't afford it. And so we went off to lunch, and I was talking to Colleen about how much I wanted this, and uh, 
She said, well, we should really go back and see how much it costs. Well, it turns out that the owner of the antique store had no idea what she had. She was selling a frame, expecting that I would put a different picture in there. What she didn't know is what is in here is an official reproduction from the Book of Kells. The only place you can buy those reproductions is in Trinity College Library in Dublin. And this is an actual real church icon from the Irish church that would have been brought out specifically on certain holidays to help in the worship. And and it's a reproduction, uh, an accurate reproduction, not a shiny, glossy poster or anything. It's a church icon of the page of the apostles in the book of Kells, which is one of the most famous Bibles in existence today. And uh, it's a depiction of the four apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the authors of the Gospels. And, um, and so the owner of the store thought she was selling a picture frame. And I could afford a picture frame. And so we bought it. But why do I bring this up? Obviously got nothing to do with elves. Well, I bring it up because it... it It's a doorway into a way of looking at the world that we've lost. So if you you take, for example, the book of Kells or any ancient biblical manuscript or map or document, you will always find on the edges, on the margins of the page, things like this. Here you have a two-headed dragon. One head is breathing fire. The other is eating some kind of a weird snake creature. I have no idea what it means. We could probably look it up historically. But we always have this. On the, in the center of the page, you have the clear text of the Word of God that you can read and understand. But on the edges, on the margins of the page, you have these fanciful doodles of all kinds of creatures and unicorns and cherubs and angels and demons and all kinds of things. And on the maps, if you look at any ancient map, it's the same way. On the edges, just beyond where we know where the, how the edges of the land look like to draw the map, they put dragons and sea monsters and cherubs and angels and all kinds of things on the borders, on the margins. And uh, this, is, this is very common. I mean, it's, it's almost universal in that time. When we look back at that from our day, we think, those monks sure must have had a lot of time to doodle. I mean, their task was to recopy the Bible so we would still have the Word of God, and they spent more time doodling in the margins than they did actually writing the text. What a bunch of slackers. They could have probably produced like 50 copies in the time it took them to make one. But we're missing the point because they were describing in their art a way of looking at the world that says this. Just beyond, on the edges of what our senses can take in, our our sight, our touch, our smell, our ears, there is a reality that is bigger and more solid and more real and more important than our physical world. It existed before the world was created. It will exist after the world is gone. And it's there all the time. And it's more important. I mean, if you really read, if we read with our modern eyes the ancient things, we think that they thought the world was flat. I don't believe that. They weren't stupid. They could understand a horizon. They drew a map flat with edges because they were describing a theological reality. 
at the edges of what we can perceive, what we know, there is a margin that leads into a world that is bigger and greater and more beautiful and more terrible than the physical world in which we reside. And they thought it was more important to depict the theological reality than the physical reality of around earth. The theological reality was more important to describe in their map. So they were, to, they were drawing, this is what we know, and then here's the edges of what we know, and beyond the edges is a vast eternal unknown. And we better learn to interact with it, because that's where we're going to be for eternity. And we see this in the cathedrals. I don't know if you've ever been to Europe. Some of you I know have. And visited these structures. Again, we think, why did they spend two generations to build a church in a little village? They were expressing something. And you'll find on the edges of the cathedral, there are always gargoyles. Now, they're not in the main structure They're usually not inside the church, but on the eaves and on the edges of the parapets where it looks like they might just fall off or they might stay attached. Right on the edges, right on the margins. There's fanciful creatures and imaginary things and unicorns and demons and angels and cherubs. An indication that just beyond what's solid for us, there's a reality that's there and it's real. And this building is designed to help us because the margin doesn't only exist on the eaves where it might just get washed down with the rain. They put that margin right in the center, and we still do. In our church, we do it once a month. In the center of the church, there's a table or an altar. And on that table, there is the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus Christ comes from beyond that margin, of what we can touch with our senses. And he came to the very center, became a man. And he provided a way for us to encounter and begin to live in that greater, more real, more substantial world. And there's a wrong way and a right way to encounter what is beyond the edge, what's on the margin. But encounter it, you will. So you might encounter it there with the gargoyles on the outside of the church. Or you're invited into the center to encounter it in Jesus Christ, in Christmas. And we know this to be true, don't we? Of course we do. Imagine a medieval village. In those days, nobody lived on the farms out in the country. Everyone lived in the village. And in the village, there's rules, and there's streets that follow a pattern, and there's proper etiquette, and you shake hands, and you do things properly, and everything's in order, and everything's above board. And if you want to do something illegal, something from beyond the edge, you're going to leave the village, right? And the street or the road that leads to the next village, you'll probably not do that horrible thing on the street either. You'll go off into the forest beyond what we know into the margin. And that's where the demons will overtake you. And if they overtake you too many times, you might someday, in the middle of the night when it's dark and the margin comes into the village, you might do those evil things in the village too. We we understand this. This is how we operate. We close the curtains. We move to the margins before we allow the demons to overtake us. But we can encounter that world in the right way through Jesus Christ. 
as well. And so that's a depiction. Now, you might be wondering what in the world that has to do with elves. I'm kind of wondering by now, too. I want to take you on another trail, and this one I'm going to skip over most of it because we just don't have time. But it starts all the way back in Genesis. When, when God uh, made the man, he said to the man, or it says in Genesis 2.19, So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. And that is a legitimate task that God gave us to describe the physical world. Today we have a word for that. We call it science. We're still naming things. We're still in the process of naming things. And in Psalms 101, this this process of naming things is, is referred to as worship. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. So we ponder the created things that God made. And in our pondering, we worship. We take delight in the God who made them. This is legitimate. This is real. In fact, even today, we have this thing, if you'll allow me, you know, I know we're all tired of it, but why are we all arguing about COVID? It's real simple. We haven't named it yet. We haven't agreed on a name, a description. Once we've agreed on a name, it'll fade into the background. Now, from Genesis to medieval Europe, when the majority of people understood the world in this Christian point of view, till now, and this is where I'm skipping over, but we know this, we now live in a world where if you can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it, it does not exist. We have erased the margins. We've, we've, we've decided as a culture they do not exist. We've decided that the only thing that is real is the physical world. And like it or not, as Christians, this worldview is so prevalent around us that it creeps into us too. And we can't help ourselves. We see it that way. And you can see the Christmas imagination fading into the background here, almost impossible to touch. This process should not surprise us. It's actually described to us in Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because he has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. My translation, God has left tracks in the snow. Yes, he is invisible to our physical eyes. But he's left tracks in the snow, enough that if we look at them, if we understand what we're looking at, we are without excuse for deciding that the only thing that really exists is the physical world. The margins are real. And what exists just beyond our sight is more real, more substantial 
because it's eternal. More important, but let's go on with Romans. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. See, that's Psalms 101, right? They pondered all that God had made and took delight in it. Yes, they studied and named the world, the physical world, but they did it as an act of worship. And here we see this turning. They neither glorified God nor gave him thanks, but their thinking became futile and, in, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They stopped drawing the crazy creatures on the margins. They stopped believing that there's a world beyond what we can see and hear and touch and taste. The results are stark. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. We even see that in the Advent videos I've been showing. A family that externally is Christian, but we can see that their behaviors have crept away from them towards the edges, towards the margins. And as they meet the nativity, it's bringing them back to the center. This view of the world is anti-biblical. It's against the Bible. And we just need to look at the Christmas story. We could look anywhere in God's word, but it's Christmas, so we'll look at the Christmas story to see how, how the Bible sees things, how God's word reveals reality to us. Now think for just a moment about Mary. Something from beyond the edge, off the page, visited her, an angel. She had that encounter It was obviously disconcerting and then in the end maybe comforting. And I ask you, did she go down to the nearest university and describe what she saw and ask, can you explain this to me? You know, and they might have asked her, well, um, did you eat any mushrooms yesterday? You know, like like is is there an explanation for this? And they would have found some way to explain it, I'm sure. But she didn't do that. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. She accepted as factual her experience of something that came from beyond the edge of her physical senses. And she lived according to it. It was normal for her. That's how she understood the world. Now, it wasn't common even when we look at the people in the Bible who encounter God all the time when we read the stories and we, look, we lay it out in a timeline, we realize, like, for example, Abraham. How long did he live? He really only had, described in the Bible, five or six encounters with God from beyond the edge. It wasn't all the time. It was uncommon, even in one of the most common people. 
Now Moses, it was much more regular. And of course, the disciples walking the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus, it was every day, though they didn't realize it till after he rose from the dead. But she just accepted that. Yes, there, there is a reality beyond the physical that has the ability to come in here and confront me. And I have to respond to it. That's how she understood the world. That's how the Bible understands the world. Now we think of Joseph. When, she, when he heard about Mary's experience, he was skeptical. I guess I should just divorce her quietly so neither of us is dishonored. Obviously, he could have chose to embarrass her publicly. But let's just do it quietly. And then he had a dream. And the angel visited him. Mary, it was a physical presence in her, in her, in her presence wherever she was. But, but Joseph, it was in a dream. He was sleeping. And he too just, you know, he didn't, he didn't go to the psychologist and say, you know, what, what does this mean? Like, like what's coming up from my childhood? Or, or he, didn't, he didn't go to the bar with his friends and say, I had the craziest dream and tell the story and everyone has a good laugh. No, he, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He acted as though it was real as though it was more real than his physical reality, because he was going to encounter ridicule and dishonor by taking a wife who was pregnant before the marriage. He thought, it's more real than my physical reality. Even if it costs me in the physical, I'll act on it. And then, of course, we have the shepherds the most famous encounter. They at first thought it was from the wrong side. The gargoyles were visiting them. They were terrified. But through the course of the conversation, the angels convinced them that they were from God. And as soon as the angels left, they said, let's go to Bethlehem and register our experience in the UFO registry. No. Let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord, our God, has told us about. I assume it's the first and last experience they ever had in their lives from beyond the margin. Not common, not regular, but normal. In their view of the world, that was normal. What about in our view of the world? Is it normal? Maybe not regular less often than we'd like, but is it normal to encounter that which is beyond the physical world, which will still be here long after? This view of the world has maybe one place left in our culture, and it's at the North Pole. Do you realize how many people get seriously offended and upset with you if you dare to tell their children that Santa Claus is not real. They desperately want to believe that there's something beyond the edge. It's evident in their actions. I mean, you ask any parent, would you lie to your children? Well, maybe if they're honest, they'll say, sometimes I do, but I shouldn't, right? But yet they, they'll they'll kick you out of their, their house if you tell them that the elves aren't making toys for them right now. And I think that's 
tracks in the snow. It's not the real thing. Christmas elves are not the real thing. But it's evidence that people still know that there's something else beyond the physical. They can't define it. They can't see it. They don't know what it is. They don't draw it on the edges of the pages anymore like they did in the book of Kells. But they want it to be true. They desperately want it to be true. Tracks in the snow. So let's think about that for a minute. What are the tracks? What do they tell us? I mean, we know if we actually go to the North Pole, there's just ice, ocean. So the stories go that, you know, I just watched one the other night um, where, where Santa Claus had to go find the elves somewhere in Norway or something and get some kind of star of David made and put in there so magically he could have this kingdom on the North Pole that you could sail your ship right through and not see it. So what, are, what, what is this telling us? Well, first of all, what I've already said. The North Pole is a place that is just beyond the reach of our physical knowledge. It's just beyond. It's, it's, it's there. We know where it is. We can describe it, but you'll never see it. We know it's more real than the physical world. Well, how do we know that? Well, for example, if your letter to Santa Claus gets to the elves three seconds before he takes off in his sleigh, they will still be able to make the toy and get it in the, in the sack. And Santa Claus can reach every house. And it doesn't matter the weather. He's not impeded by weather. It doesn't matter where in the world. And he can reach every house at the exact stroke of midnight. And even though he comes in and out, you'll never see him. He's not... He's not um, inhibited by physical reality, which means it's more real than the physical reality. It, it supersedes physical reality. The elves are doing... I mean, we, we know all year long, what do the elves do in Santa's workshop? They make toys and candy. Now, from a child's perspective, what is the best work you could do in the world? make toys and candy. Unlimited supply. But there's a, that, that idea rhymes with something that's very biblical. For example, in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So we do actually believe that beyond the edge of the physical world, God and Jesus and the angels are, are working for our good. Sometimes we refer to it as providence, the providential care of God. He holds the world together and, and watches out and does good at all times. So yeah, the elves don't tell us much about God. But they're like a track in the snow that tell us something real exists. It's not the real thing. Then we can look at, um, well, what do we know? Have you been naughty or have you been nice? Who keeps track? Of course, the elves at the North Pole have a list. You, you know already where I'm going with that. For example, Psalms 33. 
From the heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all humankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. There is a list. It's not anything like the one in the Santa Claus and elves stories. But it's just beyond the edge, beyond the margin of the page, in a reality that is more real than what our eyes can tell us, because it's eternal, and what our eyes see will pass away. And then um, there's the fact that, I, I mean, I don't know, you didn't answer out loud when I asked if you've been naughty or nice, but we know it's just an empty threat. Every child gets a present, even the naughty ones. There's a, a multitude of love and forgiveness and graciousness in this story, just like in the real story. Jeremiah says of God, in God's voice, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. I will build you up again and again. Virgin Israel will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. This is spoken to those who were truly naughty. They'd been exiled, punished by God. And he said, even you will dance and be joyful. Did you see how hard it was for the father to try to smile at the end of the video? Oh, his face was not used to smiling. It was hard. But even he will dance and be joyful when he encounters Jesus. When God comes from beyond that edge, beyond that boundary, from beyond the margins into our midst at Christmas. Well, what does this have to do with you and I? I started actually down this path several Sundays ago. And I knew today I'd be over time because there's a message I want to give. And it was going to take a little more time than noon. I started looking at our church as I realized the number of Sundays I had to preach here was limited. And I was asking God, what... What's the last message? What's the last imprint to leave here in Wainwright? And I looked at our vision statement, United in Jesus Christ, as we grow up in and out. And my assessment tells me that we're weakest in the out arrow. Several Sundays ago, I brought this up. And we looked at how the up arrow, our relationship with God, our relationship up our relationship across that margin because even though it's hard for us in our current world to keep it center in our minds that we really do believe in a world that looks like this um we do want to know god and we believe we can and i'm i'm absolutely confident that this church will continue on that journey well on the way we're not perfect we don't know him completely but we know how you don't need me for that I'm absolutely confident of that in this church. But we saw that those couple of Sundays ago that as we get to know God better, we soon found that his face is pointing out to the world. Yes, we know him to our benefit, but what did Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As we get to know him, 
we will always find that he's looking out. It's not just for our benefit that he gives himself to us. And our growth in our knowledge of God will stop and be stunted if we don't look out with him. If we don't look where he's looking. If we don't go where he's going. And then we looked at the the green arrow. The growth arrow. The in arrow. How the Bible teaches us in so many different ways. Through our gifts and, and through our encouragement and ministry to one another. That we build one another up. And grow strong as a community, a family of God. But we saw there also that as we get to know each other, we soon discover that the center of each person's heart is a longing for those they love who don't know Jesus. And we can't truly help one another unless we help one another also in reaching out to those who we love who don't know him. And so we find ourselves pointing out again. And I have absolute confidence that the Wainwright Evangelical Free Church will continue to grow in your relationships with one another, to build one another up, learn your spiritual gifts, and become a true, even more than you are already, united and loving body of Christ. No worries there. Now maybe the fact that the harvest arrow is weakest is more a reflection of my ministry than anything else. I'll accept the criticism. Some of it's probably valid. It doesn't matter why. But if we want to grow, if we truly want to grow, we have to be balanced in all three areas. We have to grow out. So that's where I want to end these Sundays. So how do we, what does this have to do with elves? You're probably shaking your head. Boy, he's all over the place this morning. It does have to do with elves. I've read the studies, all of them. Well, probably not all of them, but all the ones I've been able to encounter. When people in Canada, when people in Alberta are asked, why don't you go to church? Why don't you want to talk to a Christian? Their first or second answer is always because the church is too judgmental. It's universal across Canada. That is the experience of Canadians. The church is too judgmental. I don't want to go there. I'll be judged. Puts a serious damper in our out arrow, doesn't it? So how we don't mean to be judgmental. I know you don't. I know you. You, you don't look at people that way. But it comes across that way. So I'll use myself as an example. My wife collects nativity scenes. Um, you can't even move in our house right now with all the nativity scenes around. And so last Christmas, I was shopping for a nativity scene. Now, it seems silly to me to buy a nativity scene before Christmas and then give it as a Christmas present and then pack it away right away for next Christmas. But that's who she is. She loves it. And so I was shopping for a nativity scene. Now, I did not find a single store in Wainwright that had a nativity scene for sale. Not even one. And I was getting a little bitter in my heart. What kind of people are these? I, mean, I don't care if you sell a Santa Claus and a Frosty the Snowman, but put a nativity scene on the shelf too. And I went to Edmonton 
And I couldn't find a store that would sell me a nativity scene anywhere. And I was getting quite judgmental. I was thinking, what about all these stores? Like, don't they know the true meaning of Christmas? What's with all these, like, what in the world is R2-D2, a blown-up R2-D2 in a, in, a, in a red sleigh have to do with Christmas? It's ridiculous. And that attitude comes across, doesn't it? I don't mean it to be judgmental, but that's all they feel. They notice me stomping out of the store. They don't know why, but they go, oh, there's the pastor, and he's not happy. They can feel it. It is judgmental. Why would we expect people who live 100% of their lives from birth till death in this world to want to put something on their mantle that reminds them that there's a margin, that there's something real beyond the physical? What a ridiculous thing for them to do if that's the world they see. All right. Christmas offers so many opportunities to build bridges if we stop being judgmental. If we stop not saying, but if our minds actually never think again, why doesn't that person put a nativity scene out on their decorations? Why is it all secular? Why do they want me to call this a festive tree instead of a Christmas tree? As long as we're asking those questions, we're still judging the people. We're still judging them and expecting them. You see, we are not going to turn this clock back. Our culture has moved on. It's not coming back. It's just not. We want it to. We desperately want to be in that world. I mean, think of another thing. Why did we have, last Sunday, the children's Christmas pageant up here for half the service on a Sunday morning? Why? Do you know the answer? We can all think back. Maybe the younger ones of you can't. But we can all think back to a time when we put on a big production, including children and adults, and we put it on Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday morning and filled the church every time. Why is that not happening? Because we put it on Saturday night and nobody comes anymore. They don't care. The stuff beyond the margins is completely out of sight. They don't care. They don't come. They won't come. And we have a whole tool bag of evangelism tools that don't work in this world. And we have to move on. We just have to build new tools. There's no option. So that's why I'm talking about Frosty the Snowman and Christmas elves. What we need to do is we need to, not just at Christmas, but all year, God's Word just told us in Romans that there is enough evidence in the world that people are without excuse. We need to get good at finding the tracks. We can't turn a light on and say, look, here's the actual physical God in Wainwright. No, we have to find the tracks that God leaves behind and point them out. 
And I gave you an example last Sunday with Frosty the Snowman. It's a completely secular story. It has nothing to do even with Christmas, yet we hear it over and over again at Christmas. But the plot is exactly the biblical plot. Why couldn't we go to someone's house and instead of saying, why do you have a Frosty on your snowman? This Don't you know the true meaning of Christmas? Get all judgmental. Why don't we rather say, isn't that a cool story? Wouldn't it be wonderful if a frozen, cold, dead heart could actually come alive? And they go, oh, that'd be kind of cool. I gave you the verses last Sunday. I didn't give you all of them. I had to cut out a bunch of the sermon because I wanted to be on time last Sunday, but today I don't care. I'll give you a hint. I had a whole section in last Sunday's sermon about all the places in God's Word that make an illustration of putting on clothes of Jesus that transforms your life. They put clothes on the snowman and he came to life. You'll have to go find the verses yourself. I'm not going to tell you where they are. There's a number of places where that illustration is made in Scripture. You could build that bridge in a conversation. You don't have to be critical. Why, do you, why are you listening to Frosty? Why don't you listen to Away in a Manger? Instead say, I love that Frosty story. It reminds you of this, me of this Bible verse that talks about when we put on the clothes of Jesus, just like Frosty put on the hat, we come alive. I can't give you the bridges. They're all over the place, but you have to find them. Christmas elves, they enable us to imagine a reality beyond the edges. They tell us that the people we know and love around us in Wainwright actually want to believe that such a thing could be true. I mean, they don't believe it. They don't actually believe in Christmas elves, but they want to. They want their children to as long as possible which gives evidence. It's not the real thing, of course. It's not the real thing. But there are similarities. There's enough similarities to start the conversation. And we have a really good example to follow from God's Word. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? You've heard of him, right? He had a toolkit for reaching cities for Jesus. And this is what was in it. He went to a place. He found the synagogue. And among the people who were circumcised Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who knew the Old Testament, in other words, they had this view of the world. They understood the world to be physically real, but there, there was a more real reality just beyond the margins of what we could perceive. So he found those people that saw the world that way, and he started with, this, with, the, with the prophets and the law. And he described to them how Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophets and the law. And many of them believed and were saved. Very effective toolkit. Then he came to a town, Athens, where there was no synagogue. He didn't pull out that toolkit. He didn't use those tools. He did it a different way. It says in Acts chapter 17, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. He found the tracks. That unknown God isn't the God of the Bible. 
but it gave evidence that the people knew from their own context, from their own culture, from their own stories. It gave evidence that they knew there was something beyond their knowledge, that if they could ever find it, it would be worth exploring. So he found the tracks of God in their stuff, in their songs, in their stories. And he said, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And he started, not with the law and prophets, but with Genesis. He used a different toolkit in a different place. My friends, we live in that different place today. The other place isn't coming back. If we can't discuss the reality of people's lives, like, for example, in a nativity video that makes us feel uncomfortable, we're being too judgmental. We'll never reach them. Our Christmas imagination. Let me give you a real-life example. When we were in Meeting Creek, before we came here, our children went to school in Bashaw. And uh, some of my children and my wife joined the Bashaw Theater Company and the community theater there. And you wouldn't guess what they cast my wife as in the first play. A prostitute. She came home and said, do we really want to do this? And we decided, yes, we do. And so the pastor's wife got up on stage for five consecutive performances of dinner theater and acted and talked like a prostitute. The townspeople thought it was the biggest joke ever. The church people thought it was a bit scandalous, to be honest. But I can tell you that this morning, right now, in the Evangelical Free Church of Wainwright, there are people worshiping God because of that. They didn't feel judged because the pastor's wife came into their context and entered their story and found the tracks of God. I do believe that our church is weakest on the out arrow and will never get strong unless we learn to believe in Christmas elves. We believe in many more things that are even more real than that, but at least we need to be able to find the tracks in our culture that God leaves behind that point to a greater reality and stop forcing people to come into our world and understand our stories first. It's the only way. The song we're going to close with is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. What could be more appropriate? God coming from beyond our perception to where we can truly perceive and know him. And we need to find ways to get that story out that communicate effectively.